This message is brought to you by Mill City Church in Lowell, Massachusetts. For more information, please visit millcitychurch.net. You guys ready to study God's Word together this morning? Turn to the book of Habakkuk. There may be a, a person or two who's like, Habakkuk, is that even in the Bible, right? I mean, Habakkuk's not exactly a book that we read often in the church, but it's in the Bible, it's in the Old Testament. It's one of the minor prophets. There is an entire section of Scripture in the Old Testament. There's about a dozen of them. What we know is the minor prophets. And they're not minor because they're not important. They're called minor prophets because of the brevity of their length. Whereas when you look at books like Isaiah and Jeremiah, I mean, Isaiah has 66 chapters. It's one of the longest books in the Bible. You're looking at Habakkuk, it's, it's three chapters, and not only three chapters, but three very short chapters. And so that's why the minor prophets are called minor. Now, if you were here last week, you know that we preached through the entire book of 2 Peter in a 45-minute sermon. And this week, because last week went so well, we're going to go through the entire book of Habakkuk today, and my goal is to hit that about, about that same mark. I love teaching through the Bible like this. I remember um, I was in New York City a few years ago. I've been to a lot of other big cities, not only in America, but in other parts of the world. And when you go to a big city, and especially if it's a tourist destination, you probably have your favorite places that you would like to visit or the big thing that everybody talks about there. So if you go to New York City... You know, you want to go to the Statue of Liberty, you want to go to uh, the new Freedom Tower, you may want to catch a Broadway show or go to a a Yankee or Met game, whatever it is that New York City is calling you, you see those big things. I want you to imagine for a moment that you arrived in New York City, maybe in the dead of night, and you were just simply taken to your hotel, and then you just walked across the street to your favorite location or that touristy destination that you were going And then you left the next morning and you went home and you said, you know, there really wasn't too much to New York City. It's really actually a very small place. It was just a couple of blocks. I mean, I just went there and I had a great experience, but there's really not much to it. You say, that's ludicrous. New York City is the largest city in America. It's like... There are boroughs there. There, You could be there for a year and not do everything, right? We know that. Why do we know that? Because we have other perspectives. And one of the best perspectives that I always get when I go to a big city is I want to go to the observation deck, right? And and a lot of cities have these. If you go to St. Louis, you're going to go to the Gateway Arch. You're going to go up inside of that. If you go to New York City, you're going to go to the Empire State Building. You're going to Rockefeller Center, right? And you're going to go up to that observation deck. And what I always appreciate about those observation decks is you get a perspective of the city that you never would have gotten if you had simply remained on the ground. Because you get to see the vastness of the area. You can see landmarks that you never would have seen if you would have just gone to your favorite location. You get a vantage point that's very different. And this is why I like teaching through the Bible like this every now and then. And there's a time and a place for different ways of studying the Bible. One of the reasons why I love looking at books at a glance is because it's like we're going up into the observation deck and we're getting a much bigger picture, a much grander picture of the storyline of God. 
of how God is making a name for himself and saving his people and doing things on a much grander scale than we normally think. For us, we have our favorite verses. As a matter of fact, there are a couple of verses in Habakkuk that land on a lot of artwork and land on a lot of people's favorite memory verse list. But if we don't know exactly what the bigger picture is in that book, those verses get lost because we don't read them in their context. And so that's what we're going to do today in the book of Habakkuk. Now, to understand the book of Habakkuk, you probably want to go back and read 2 Kings chapter 23. Because it's going to give you a little bit more of the backdrop for the book of Habakkuk and this prophet of God who is writing this oracle. There were a lot of unrighteous kings in Judah's history. Unrighteous kings whom God himself put in power who would lead the people to idolatry. And that put wicked laws into existence and lead the people away from God and not towards God. And his people would be punished for this time and time again. But then there were these bright spots in Israel and Judah's history. These bright spots of kings who would actually lead the people through reforms to repent. And to turn back towards God and to put righteous ways and righteous laws in action among God's people. But King Josiah, Josiah had a very profitable run as king, a very righteous rule as king. But even still, God's people would be morally and spiritually corrupt. They would go back and worship Baal and other false gods. They would even sacrifice their children to another so-called God. They dedicated their livestock to the sun god and allowed the temple to fall to ruin. And although they did experience that little season of renewal, they would return again to their idolatrous ways. And it's with this backdrop that we begin reading the book of Habakkuk. This prophet of God is among a faithful remnant, a faithful remnant of people who these people are crying out to God for justice and for purity among God's people. And Habakkuk is looking around at him and seeing very little evidence of either of these. And so we begin in Habakkuk chapter 1 and verse 1. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity, and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed. And justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. And so justice goes forth perverted. Do you hear Habakkuk's cry? How long, O Lord? How long are you going to allow your people to simply walk in contention? How long, O Lord, will you just idly sit by and do nothing while your people look just like the rest of the world? And how can you, God, a holy, righteous God, how can you just allow these injustices to grow and spread and unrighteousness to persist among your people. 
Have you ever felt like that? I mean, have you ever in your, the quietness of your own heart just looked up to God and just said, How long, Lord? How long does unfairness have to be around us? How long does inequity have to exist? How long do injustices get to rule among us, right? And Habakkuk is bringing this before the Lord. But what we're going to see through this short minor prophet is we're going to see what this prophet of God would teach us. What he would teach us about God, about judgment of sin, about joy, and ultimately even about ourselves. So let's see what God would teach us through this short book today. Here's the first truth that I believe that we can learn from Habakkuk's interactions with God. Number one, a very important truth. In response to these first four verses, God is working even when we don't sense it. God is working even when we don't sense it. And we're about to get this on a, in, a, in a pretty grand way communicated to us. When, when we look at life, when we look at those around us, since we see the unfairness, the injustices, the inequity around us, the, the unfairness that just seems like the righteous just seem to suffer, but the unrighteous seem to prosper, and those who have continue to get, those who sin just continually, it just seems like nothing bad happens to them. It just seems like, God, you don't care. Because if you did care, you would do something. And you said that you're working. And you say that you're a holy God. And what God is about to show us is that he is working even when we don't sense it. Look at verse 5. Here's God's answer to Habakkuk and his cry to him. He says, look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. Now what's interesting is there are a lot of Christians who will take this verse and they will put that as their theme verse for their Christian conference or their Christian retreat for the weekend. That God is about to do something that, that you wouldn't even believe if you were told. But we miss the fact that this verse comes right in the middle of impending judgment. I mean, God is going to do something that you're going to marvel over and be astounded over, but you're probably not going to like what's going to come. But, but don't miss the fact that God's answer to Habakkuk is basically this. You think I'm not at work. It appears like everyone else is winning and you're losing. You're, you're, you're assuming that I have changed or I have not lived up to who I am. But I promise you, though you can't see it, I'm at work. I am working and you're not going to believe what I'm about to do. And then in verse 6, he's going to tell him, For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans. It's another word for the Babylonians. I am raising up the Babylonians, that bitter and hasty nation who marched through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. Habakkuk, I'm at work. And the unrighteous and the wicked are going to be punished. And guess what? 
I'm going to raise up one of the most ruthless kingdoms, one of the most sinful, debaucherous empires, so prideful, so merciless, and I'm going to send them to my people, and I'm going to judge my people through this very unholy, wicked nation. And God goes on, and he describes the Babylonians. He says, uh, it's verse 7, they are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress. For they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. This is God's response to Habakkuk. Yeah, I'm working and you're going to be astounded when you see how I do this. And so now what's going to happen? Habakkuk is going to reply back to God. And verse 12, Habakkuk says, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. Here, verse 13 is key here. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he. So God has told Habakkuk, yeah, I'm going to judge my people, and I'm going to actually use a very wicked, oppressive nation by which to do that. And now Habakkuk is going to reply, whoa, wait a minute, Lord, but how? You, you are so holy and you are so intolerable of sin. You're, you're going to use this unrighteous, wicked people to judge your people. And then Habakkuk goes on. You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. Talking of the Babylonians, he brings all of them up with a hook. He, he drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet. So he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? I will take my stand at my watch post. And station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. God is working even when we don't sense it. We see at least three ways God is working here behind the scenes. That Habakkuk is having a hard time seeing and that you and I may have a hard time seeing if we're looking around at our lives today or even looking back through the annals of church history and trying to discern why did God do that, that way, through those means. We see at least three ways here God is working. Number one, He is intolerable of all sin. You see, it's very tempting for us to think that somehow because God uses the means by which He uses, to think somehow that His character has changed or that He is different somehow. But to Habakkuk's credit, He never went there. He never went there because when you look at verse 13, he rightly said, 
you who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. You see, Habakkuk had a clear view of who God is. He may not have understood everything that was going on around him or why God was choosing to act the way in which he acted. But Habakkuk had a clear view of the character of God. And this is very instructive for you and for me. I don't know all the answers of what's going on and why and when and who. I don't. That may not be very comforting for you as I'm the pastor and I'm actually preaching God's word to you today. I don't have all of those answers. And you don't have all of those answers. There are often times that we look at our circumstances or what's going on around us and we simply don't know. And we're confused. And I believe that Habakkuk gives us a good model here of how to rightly ask God and inquire God, of God what his purposes are and what he's doing without indicting him. He still knows who God is. And that's one of the ways in which God is working here is his character is remaining consistent. Whether it's the sin of the faithful or the sin of the wicked, God is intolerable of all sin. Number two, God is sovereign over all nations. God is sovereign over all nations. This is very important for us to understand. When you look at our, at our current day, and this has been the reality um, in on, on earth for a long, long time. It's not just today in the year 2019. But, but we can wrongly assume that because the United States of America is the most powerful nation on earth, that somehow that America is God's favored nation on earth. And it's just not reality. God, America is no more God's favorite on earth than any other powerful empire that existed through the annals of history. God has one chosen people, and it's the people he's been drawing to himself since the very beginning of time. Israel, who would become the true Israel, the church of Jesus Christ. And it's very tempting to us to, to think that somehow that because of the might of our military power or the wealth of our treasury, that somehow that we are self-sufficient. And it was true for the Babylonians. The Babylonians were very powerful in their day. They were very wealthy in their day. Other countries and nations feared them. But God was sovereign over the Babylonians. Just as God was sovereign over Judah, just as God is sovereign over the United States today, he is sovereign over Russia and China and Mexico. God is sovereign over all nations. Where do we see this? In verse 6, God says, For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans. I am raising up the Babylonians. Oh, they may be powerful. They may be scary to you. But they do nothing unless I give them the power to do it. He says that I am sovereign over Babylon. If you go down to verse 12, Habakkuk rightly says, O Lord, you have ordained them as judgment. Friend, here's the reality. There is nothing that happens on earth that is outside of God's control. There are no circumstances that are outside of his purview. There is no country too mighty for him. There is no country too wicked for him. God is sovereign over all nations. God is working even when we don't sense it. And lastly, he is faithful to all his promises. 
He is faithful to all his promises. Go with me down to verse 2 in chapter 2. So here's the Lord's answer to Habakkuk. Write the vision. Make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. Write what? That judgment is coming and it's coming at the hands of the Babylonians. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Habakkuk thought for sure that God was not going to fulfill his promises. He thought for sure that God was letting wickedness run rampant without being punished. Habakkuk was sure that he had answers for things that were far more complex than he could understand or imagine. And God makes it plain and clear, though it may seem like I'm delaying, may it, it may seem like I'm not doing anything, I promise that I will be faithful to what I have promised you. It makes me think of, of, of Jesus Christ himself. I, I referenced this last week as we were going through the book of Second Peter, and I believe it's very pertinent for our study this morning. Remember that for centuries, God had promised a Messiah. God had promised his people that the Messiah was going to come, the ultimate deliverer to his people. But yet all of this destruction and rampant wickedness and idolatry would continue among God's people, and there was no Messiah. And then, in a strange turns of events, humanly speaking, God actually goes silent for four centuries. For 400 years, and generation after generation after generation, no new word from God. No reminder of his promises. Generation after generation just had the centuries of promises that they had before. And don't you know there were so many Israelites who wondered, is God truly going to deliver our people? Is God truly going to be true to what he's promised? But as Galatians chapter 4, verse 4 tells us, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Here's why this is such good news for you and for me. Is that if God was true to fulfill his purpose and plans to Habakkuk, if he was true in fulfilling his promises that he had prophesied for centuries about his son Jesus Christ, you and I can be confident that what God has promised today to you and to me, he will accomplish. God is working even when you and I don't see it. God is painting this beautiful tapestry, this beautiful canvas. And he is painting on a canvas so much larger than you or I can imagine or see. When we're looking at our circumstances when we're looking at what's going on around us, it's like getting up to a tapestry or a canvas and looking at the artwork like this. Have you ever noticed that the closer you look at something, your eyes cross? Now, you may be a very specially gifted, talented person, but I have never looked at anything cross-eyed and seen it clearly. Right? And, here, and here's the truth and reality. Humanly speaking on earth, the closer we look at something and the closer we are to something, the more skewed our vision is. But the further we get back, we see a much bigger picture 
and our vision becomes much more focused, and it's, oh, that's a picture of a farm. I thought it was just a glob of goo, you know? But we look at our circumstances, like God doesn't care. God doesn't love me. But one day, we're going to have the greater perspective and get to the observation tower, and God's going to show us this beautiful canvas and tapestry that is your life, and you're going to say, ah, a masterpiece. The circumstances I thought were a glob of goo that you didn't care about, you were painting that? God is working, even when you don't sense it. And now you're thinking, Chris, I'm looking at the clock, and that was just point one. Trust me. Point two, here's the second truth that Habakkuk is going to teach us, is that we are to be marked by faith even when it seems like we're the only ones. We're to be marked by faith even when it seems like we're the only ones. Look at verse 4 and 5. You're going to see a contrast here. I want you to see this. There is a contrast between the wicked, unrighteous Babylonians and the faithful remnant of God's people. Verse 4, Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol, like death he, he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. Do you see the contrast? The Babylonians are puffed up. They are arrogant. They are greedy. They are murderous. They are oppressors is what we learn from the text. But the key there is that word but. But the righteous shall live by his faith. Now that verse is actually repeated three different times in the New Testament. You see it in the book of Romans, the book of Galatians, and the book of Hebrews. And when you see this verse in the book in the New Testament, it's illustrating for us that a person is made righteous not by our meritorious works, but by faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. But not only are we made righteous in God's sight by faith in Jesus Christ, but that same faith that saves us is also the same faith that changes our perspective, changes our mindset about what's going on around us, and we actually live by the same means by which we are saved. We are saved by our faith, and we also live by our faith. We think by our faith. We hope by our faith. Now, this is important because what this is illustrating is that God is after the heart here. That what's going on in here is to birth out of our lives and to affect our minds. And what God is ultimately telling us is that no matter what everyone else is doing, no matter how unfaithful the people are around you, no matter how wicked the lost are around you, you be faithful. You be hope-filled. No matter what anyone else is doing, you be holy. You be like me. Don't be like the rest of them. Don't be like the unfaithful people of mine. And don't be like the wicked oppressors. You be faithful. You be holy. Even if you're the only one. And don't be like the other people of mine who look at everything around me, that, that, around you that's going on and think that somehow I'm not here 
and that I'm not working and that I don't care. That's a very worldly mentality. Don't think like the world. Think like you're supposed to think as my people. Hold true to my promises. You live by your faith no matter what other people are doing. But brother and sister, it's always easier to go along with public opinion, isn't it? I mean, nobody wants to be the dissenter in our friendship group, right? Nobody wants to be the only person in the squad, right, that, that is thinking differently because we want to be popular. We, we, we don't want people to think less of us. It's always easier to go with public opinion. It's always easier to go along with what everyone else is doing. But what I hope that you'll see here is whether it's the Old Testament or the New Testament, God wants his people to be set apart and to be different. And so we are to be marked by faith even when it seems like we're the only ones. Third truth, the wicked will be judged even when it seems like they're getting away with it. Now, we've already read in chapter 1 that the Babylonians were wealthy, mighty, and took pride in their wealth and might. And from the looks of things, from Habakkuk's standpoint, so God, you are sending these very wicked, unrighteous people to judge your people. And in judging your people, they are committing more atrocities. And they're just going to get away with this? Like, you're okay with that, right? And so, God is going to clarify for us again. Beginning in verse 6. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own for how long and loads himself with pledges. Here it is. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the people shall plunder you for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have fortified your life for the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink and pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you as will the destruction of the beast that terrified them for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies. For its maker trusts in its own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake, to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Seemed like they were going to get away with it. It seemed like God had overlooked all the stuff that these 
oppressors had done. And by God raising them up to judge his people, that God also was just going to overlook that wickedness and oppression as well. But in a very graphic sense, in chapter 2, God makes it very clear that these people will be punished for what they're doing. And that God will take care of that. And brother or sister, I can't fathom why God chooses to judge and to do the things that he does. But this is what he does. And we can be confident today that even though we think the wicked are getting away with it, the wicked will be judged. And we see this in three ways in chapter 2, very quickly. Number one, God will deliver his judgment. And you see that especially through verses 6 through 11, and then again in 15 through 17. God is very clear that what you have done to others, Babylon, I'm going to do to you. What you have caused other lesser countries to experience, you are going to experience yourself. And God actually mocks them in chapter 2. God will deliver his judgment. Number two, he will declare his glory. He will declare his glory. What we see in the text is that the Babylonians thought that they were glorious in and of themselves. And they boasted about their glory and might among the nations. And God says in verse 14, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. My glory is supreme. And you're going to see it. And you're going to feel it. And you are going to experience it. He will deliver his judgment. He will declare his glory. Thirdly, he will demand his worship. You look at verses 18 through 20. And you see the contrast between the fake, false gods and the one true God. And God talks about the idols and how they're simply made from resources on earth. And they have no life in them and they can't even talk. And then he contrasts this with himself and he says, But the Lord is in his holy temple. You see, the true Lord has personhood. The true Lord is alive and he's well And he's in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silent before him. In other words, recognize in your heart the greatness of who this God is. And rather than boasting and rather than indicting. Do you see that? So the wicked boast in their oppressions and their wickedness. And oftentimes the righteous indicts him because he's not acting the way in which we think he should act. And so both our boasting and our indictment should fall. And God says, you need to shut up and be silent and still before me and recognize the greatness of who I am and bow in submission. Guys, this has great spiritual weight and gravity this morning. We think that we are so wise. We think that we are so right. At the end of the day, the best we can do is probably put a Tonka truck on Mars, right? I mean, there's great ingenuity, great intellect and smartness. But our intellect and our smartness and our wisdom only gets us so far. Be silent and still before the Lord because God demands his worship. The wicked will be judged even when it seems like they're getting away with it. Last point that we're going to see. Let's go to chapter 3. 
God gives us himself even when we're looking for something else. God gives us himself even when we're looking for something else. When you're in Habakkuk's shoes, you're looking for immediate deliverance. Perhaps we, in the midst of our trying circumstances, we're looking for money. We're looking for a husband. We're looking for a wife. Maybe we're looking for kids. Maybe we're looking for a new house. Maybe we are looking for all of our dreams to come true because that's what's supposed to happen in the good old U.S. of A., right? We're looking for something. And we're expecting God to give us what we want. And oftentimes what we do is we come to God with our demands and we basically say, God, unless you give me what I want or unless you do exactly what I have laid out before you, you are not worthy of my trust. You're not worthy of my affections. You're not worthy to be worshipped. That would be a fool's errand. And Habakkuk shows us this in a really grand way because what God chooses to give us here as the solution to our dilemma is not what we were expecting. It's something completely different. And what God actually tells us is the greatest satiation to our, our hearts is himself. The greatest satisfaction to our hearts is himself. God gives us himself even when we're looking for something else. Chapter 3, a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to Shigonoth. O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Timon and the Holy One from Mount Paran. Habakkuk's gaze turns to God. Habakkuk's gaze turns to God. Where it had been before, but because of circumstances, it started to waver. And so first, what we learn here is that in response to everything that we've read this morning, let's renew our commitment to Him. Let's renew our commitment to this God. Just as Habakkuk had an awakening moment where he saw God for who He is, and he's praying to God to revive that view of God inside of his heart, let us today renew our gaze. Let us refocus our view of the greatness of this God. Have you been tempted by your circumstances to believe things about God that are simply not true? Have you been tempted by your circumstances or others around you for you to believe things about others that aren't true? Let's renew our commitment together this morning. Our commitment not to an idea, not to a philosophy, not to a book, but to a living, true, personal God. Let's renew our commitment to Him. Secondly, we're going to see in this next extended passage to remember His works among us. Let's remember His works among us. Now what God is going to do through this writing of Habakkuk, Habakkuk is going to recount through all of these verses the greatness of what God has done in the past. And so he's going to talk about how God delivered the Israelites from the Egyptians' uh, slavery. He's going to talk about how God has fought for his people. He's going to talk about how God has delivered his people from trouble. Listen to all the things that Habakkuk remembered about what God had done in the past. Verse 4, his brightness was like the light, 
rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence, and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Cushan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses on your chariot of salvation? You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped, at the flash of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me, yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Brothers and sisters, this is a picture of our God. And Habakkuk shows us exactly what Job shows us. In Job chapter 38 and 39 and following is in the midst of all of our questions and our doubts and our hurts and our concerns and our fears is the greatest thing we need is not what we think we need. We think that we are owed answers We think that God owes us explanations. We think that God owes us whatever it is we ask or demand of him. But what we see in Habakkuk chapter 3 is the same thing we see when God responds to Job. We see this revelation and reminder of who God is and what he has done. The greatest thing we need in the midst of our duress is not answers. The greatest thing we need is a knowledge of God who he is, and what he does. So let's renew our commitment to him and let's remember his works among us. Because so often when we get in the, in the mire and we see our circumstances, we end up listening to the lies that are inside of us, the doubts that are inside of us. And those doubts and those lies become truth. And it actually can shipwreck our faith. But as the famous D. Martin Lloyd-Jones said to the Christian, have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Talk to yourself the promises of God. Talk to yourself the works of God as we've seen in his revelation in the scriptures. That's what we need for our confused, struggling hearts.
So let's renew our commitment to him. Let's remember his works among us. Thirdly, let's rejoice in his provision to us. Verse 17. So here, I want, I want you to see the transformation that has happened in Habakkuk's life. If you go back to, to verses 1 through 4 in chapter 1, when Habakkuk is, how long, O Lord? Right? How long? Verse 16. In chapter 3, yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. This is basically a Hebrew way of saying, God, bring it on. Bring it on. Because you've done all this in the past, bring it on. We'll trust you for the future. And then he says in verse 17, though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines. The produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. Here's what Habakkuk would tell you and me today. Though you lose every dime that's in your bank account. Though you may even go hungry on this earth and starve to death. Although every friend may forsake you and push you out of their lives. Though every romantic relationship may betray you and walk away from you. May depression rule inside of you and bring you despondency on a daily basis, no matter what may befall you on planet earth, no matter what may be stripped away from you, Habakkuk tells us that if you have God and you've been saved by the gospel of Jesus Christ, you have everything. Yet, I will rejoice. Notice he didn't say because. He says, yet, even though all of this crud, yet I will rejoice in the God of my salvation because the Lord my God is my strength. Friend, I want you to know today, I want to talk to two groups of people today. Actually, I'm going to talk to three groups of people today. First, if you're not a believer in the room, this is so hard to say, but it's the truth from what we've looked at today. If you have not responded to the gospel and you're living your own life and you're living an unconfessed sin, an unrepentant sin, the stark reality is the same thing the people of God experienced in Habakkuk's day the same calamities that fell upon them, the, the, the calamities that the wicked in the Babylonian empire experienced, one day the Bible tells us you will also experience. And I don't know what all that means, and I don't know what that will be like, but I also don't want to find out. And I don't want you to find out either. And so maybe one of the things that you need to take away from today is that God will judge the sinner even though right now it seems like you're getting away with it. 
And so today, hear the message of salvation and turn to Jesus and turn towards the gospel because he will give you new life and he will take you who right now you're considered an enemy of God, the scripture says, and he will make you a friend of God and adopt you as a daughter or son of God. That's good news. I also want to talk to the believer in the room who you may be lying to yourself about your own sin. Maybe you think it's not a big deal. Maybe you think that your addiction to pornography is not that big a deal. Maybe you think that the way in which you treat your wife is not that big a deal. Maybe you think that the lies that you're believing and spreading or the way you're gossiping, maybe you think that's no big deal. But, but God wants his people to look like him and act like him. And so if you are living in unconfessed sin and pretending like you're an island of one and your life doesn't affect other people, repent today and turn back to God and he will cleanse you forgive you, and give you a renewed sense of purpose and calling for your life. And the third group of people I want to talk to today is the faithful. You're here and you're not perfect, but you know that your hope is in Jesus and, and you know that, 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 that he has saved you and that as best is left up to you, you're living for him, you're confessing your sin on a daily basis, you're seeking to make that right. I want to encourage you today, stay faithful. Stay faithful. Keep living by your faith. Keep being that example because it's not for naught. It's not for no reason. Keep doing it because God is pleased and that should be enough. But God will reward you for that. So regardless of where we are today, let's be corrected by the scriptures and challenged by the scriptures. But let's also be affirmed by the scriptures and so as I pray for us, let's respond to what we've learned in the scriptures. Father, today we thank you. We thank you for being a God full of mercy and kindness. We thank you that you find us where we are and you love us just the way we are. You call us out from the places where we are today, but you love us enough to refuse to leave us there. And so I pray today that wherever we are in this room, that you would bring us to our knees, confessing our sin before you, confessing our dependence upon you, renewing our commitment to you, remembering your works, and Father, taking joy and rejoicing in you. Father, work among us now as we respond to you. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.